If you turn with me to your Bibles, to the book of Judges, it's towards the beginning of the first half of the Bible. If you are looking at the church Bibles, I think it's around page 200 or so where we are. We're in Judges chapter 8, and we're picking up the story of Gideon. We're coming towards the end of that story, and we're going to read uh, chapter 8 together. It's a quite remarkable story, and there's a lot for us to learn from it. So Judges chapter 8. As we come now to God's word, let's uh, pray together and ask for his help, for God's help. Our Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. We pray that this morning it would, it would do its work among us. And we pray, Lord, that we would have soft hearts to hear what it is that you have to say. We pray this in, uh, in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So, friends, Judges chapter 8 and beginning at verse 1, let's hear God's word. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, that is Gideon, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zebar and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Peniel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Peniel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there have fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobar and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zebar and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zebar and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon the son of Josh returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men, and he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at table? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. 
And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their necks on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. And Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Peace in our time. Famous phrase that was announced by one politician called Chamberlain. He had met with Adolf Hitler and had uh, attempted to get a deal to bring peace to Europe and to the world. And he'd come back with a piece of paper with Adolf Hitler's own signature on it and declared to the watching world and all the news media, peace in our time. But that policy of appeasement, as it became known, uh, uh, failed utterly. The promise was not worth the paper that it was written on. Gideon has basically won the victory. He's sort of mopping up the remains. And we're told in verse 28 of this chapter that there's 40 years of peace under Gideon's uh, uh, leadership. 
But afterwards, Israel goes back to where it was before, not just where it was before, worse. While Gideon won the victory, he failed to win the peace. So often is that the case. In our individual spiritual lives, we take a step forward, we join a a Bible study group, or we we commit our life to Jesus, and we think everything's going to be fine, but soon enough we fail in some way. We start coming to church, and then it gets hard, and we get distracted. We volunteer for some ministry, and then it doesn't go very well. It's one thing to win a spiritual battle, It's another thing to win the peace. And for us, as those of us who are Christians here today, and we always have people with us, we we know who are seeking the Lord for the first time. That may be you. But for those of us who are Christians here uh, this morning, we live in a time of great prosperity. Of course, there are troubles and difficulties. The economy goes up and down. But by and large, in the big picture of things, the Western church has enjoyed a great season of prosperity. The challenge for the church of the Reformation was doctrinal. The challenge for the church in the 19th century was global mission. The challenge for the church in the 20th century was rationalism, what became known as doctrinal liberalism. The challenge for the church in the 21st century is being killed by ease. So easy to take all this for granted. If the secret police had come to you this week and told you, if you go to Cottage Church one more time, then you all could be in jail, and you had come this morning, nonetheless, I can guarantee you that you would be listening with more intent. And if I had had the same call from the secret police telling me that if I preached the gospel one more time, I would be in jail, I can guarantee you it would be easier for me to preach, as the old Puritan used to say, as a dying man to dying men. But no, it's all so easy. We worry about so many little things in church life. How do we win the peace? Well, the answer is to do not what Gideon did. (laughs) He completely messed it up in four primary ways. He avoided conflict. He was a bad winner. He lost his temper, and then he became a little dictator. Let's look at each of those four things to learn what not to do to win the peace. Uh, First of all, in the first uh, three verses, we'll see here, he avoided conflict. Now, it all seems very well. When you look down, uh, Ephraim is uh, complaining at him for not having an equal opportunity to be a part of things. It can happen like that in Christian leadership. Some group or other feels like they've been overlooked And they want to play a bigger part in the particular ministry game. And that's fairly common. And it seems on the surface of things as if Gideon is ameliorating them. He's pacifying them. But when you begin to look at what went on, 
you realize that he is wrongly avoiding conflict. Uh, You see, Gideon was related to Manasseh. And the, the, the charge that Ephraim was giving him is that he was biased towards his own family connections. And rather than address all that and directly say, look, come on, Ephraim, we're all in this together. We're all God's people. And, 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 and don't be so blankety-blank precious. You've got lots of opportunity. Rather than direct it, he, he flatters them. Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? Flattery can get you out of conflict sometimes. But as the Bible says, he who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. And here, if you follow the story on with this particular group called Ephraim in chapter 12, you find that they they basically in chapter 12 have the same sort of complaint to Jephthah. And because Gideon had not confronted the issue earlier, their pride now had devastating consequences for them. 42,000 of them are killed. Don't avoid uh, confrontation. Now, it's a tricky thing because it's a balance, isn't it? Some of us here tend to avoid um, uh, confronting things when we should really confront them. But there are others of us here who are the opposite end of the, uh, of the spectrum. And not only do we like co- confrontation, we seek conflict. There's nothing like a good fight, we think, inside. And there are people like that. They really quite enjoy the, the verbal sparring match. It gets them going and suddenly life seems more interesting again. It's a balance, isn't it? Uh, on the one hand... Love covers over a multitude of sins, we're told in the Bible. So there is a a time simply to ignore the issue and cover it over with love. But then we're also told, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So there's also a time to confront it. Uh, We're told, aren't we, to bear one another's burdens, but we're also told to bear our own load. It's a balance. We don't want to so encourage one another all the time, irrespective of whether we should be encouraged rather than corrected, so that all of us have such big egos, because we're constantly being encouraged whether we deserve it or not, that our heads become so big we can hardly fit through the, the doors of the church, if you see what I mean. It's a balance. Speaking the truth in love, which... And that well-known phrase doesn't mean, you know, here's a bucket load of truth I'm going to throw over you and whether you like it or not. And by the way, it's in love, you know. It means having the internal care for the person that you really have and they really know that you have their best at your heart. It's love and truth. It's a balance. But he got it entirely wrong. He just flattered them. Don't do that. Don't avoid appropriate confrontation. 
Uh, Second, then, uh, he was a bad winner. This is my way of summarizing this middle section that runs from chapter 4 through to uh, verse 17. Uh, Essentially, what's going on here is Gideon has pretty much won the victory already with his 300 people. I mean, he's defeated 120,000, and there's only 15,000 left. So he's pretty sure he can do that. But these uh, so-called friends of his refuse to help him in case he doesn't finish the job. And uh, Gideon is certain he will. And then when he comes back, having finished the job, he's he's a bad winner. He shames them. He uh, grabs these thorns and, and publicly uh, beats the leaders. It's, just like, it's sort of, it's real dancing on the grave time. It's real, like, you know, it's so, such bad leadership. Not only does that dude do that with this other group, Peniel, he, he tears down their tower. Of course, the tower would have been a, a, a symbol of their pride. I'm going to take that tower, rip it to the ground. And he's so careless about it that the people who are still in the tower are killed. And you, So what? I won. Don't be a bad winner. We were thinking about marriage a little bit earlier in the service. If you are married, what matters in your marriage is not being right all the time. What matters, matters is having a right relationship with each other. Here's one thing to never tell your spouse. Spouse, I told you so. A little, a little tip. You get to the end of your marriage in your 80s or your 90s. Does it really matter which of you has more teeth by then? Or that you're still together? It can be a challenge with friendships. Perhaps you went to college with a friend and, and your career has really taken off. You're making a bazillion bucks, you know, whatever a bazillion is, but a lot. And your friend, well, he's doing fine, but I mean, he's, you know, he, he's got a secondhand car and he drives, he lives in a very small house and, and he's scraping a living and you're like thriving. You're like, wow, you're doing so well. Sometimes it's said that it's hard to forgive someone when they wrong you, which is certainly true. But it can be even harder to forgive someone when they win. Don't rub your victories in the face of your friends. Don't be a bad winner. It's not going to help your relationship. Same in Bible study groups. Maybe you're in a Bible study group or adult community or something. You're the person who always knows the answer. You're Mr. Answer Man. You know, when you were in children's Sunday school, you always had your hand at the back saying, oh, please, I know the answer, I know the answer. And you always have the right answer. And there's someone else in the, in the Bible study group who often gets the wrong answer. But maybe they are actually putting, once they've got the right answer, they're actually putting it into practice. Doesn't that matter more? Well, at least you need to put the truth into practice. Don't be a bad winner. It won't help you win the peace. But then, uh, thirdly, not only did he mess up the peace by being a bad winner and 
by avoiding the confrontation he needed to have, appropriate confrontation. And thirdly, uh, he lost his temper. Don't do that. You can see that from verses 18 through to 21. And this is really quite extraordinary, I think. So he, he gets these people that he's been fighting against, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he just completely loses it. That's what's going on. He, he discovers that they've killed his, his family, uh, his brothers, the sons of his mother, and he's furious. It's become personal for him. And that's why, of course, he asks his son to kill them. This is now... He's now not in the zone in his mind of fighting the Lord's battles. It's now his battle, his family. Come on, boy, you do it. It's, he's, lost his, he's lost his rag. He's lost his temper. And then when Zeba and Zuma, Zalmunna tried to stoke the flames of his anger even more by saying, well, if you're a man, you'd do it. Perhaps they're hoping for a quick death by, doing, by uh, rising Gideon's anger that way. He kills them. And then he takes their ornaments off the necks of their camels. The whole thing stinks to high heaven. Oh, I'll take that with me as an ornament of our family's victory or something. It's really unpleasant. Wrong. He's lost his temper. Easy to do, even as a Christian. Not all anger is wrong. I'll warrant you that. The Bible says, in your anger do not sin, which means there is an appropriate righteous anger. But that it says, in your anger do not sin, teaches us that even when it is righteous anger, it's dangerous. Don't lose your temper. A child has a tantrum. A mature man or woman. They still have passionate concerns for life and for the truth and for the gospel and for God. But it is all controlled as part of the fruit of the Spirit, which is one part self-control. A mature person's inner energy is like the hydroelectric power grid. There's a lot of power and energy inside, but it's channeled towards positive ends. Whereas the person who loses their temper is like a dam with water behind it, and a little brick of anger falls out, another brick and another brick, and eventually the whole flood pours on someone. They lose their temper. There are words that we want to say, that we must not say. There are things we want to do in revenge that we must not do. There are emails that we want to send that we must not send. Don't lose your temper. A child stamps and screams to get their own way. Where is that which I wanted? What's happened to it? Who moved my cheese? A godly man and woman filled with the Spirit need only look 
and say no. And nothing more need be said. Don't lose your temper. Gideon did. And then the final, these things not to do in order to win the peace. peace. We've had don't avoid appropriate conflict. Don't be a bad winner. Don't lose your temper. The final one is don't become a little dictator, which is exactly what Gideon basically does. So this goes from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. And again, on the surface of it, it looks good, or at least it it could look that way. But it really isn't. So verse 22, uh, he's asked by the Israel to rule over them, to set up a, a dynasty. You and your son, a legacy of rulers, a hereditary monarchy. Come on, Gideon, set it up. And Gideon, verse 23, refuses. I will not rule, o- rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Well, that's a good answer. And, of course, it's a key thing throughout this whole book of Judges, that the, the theme that, that, that everyone did as they saw fit because there was, there was no king. And so things spiraled out of, out of control. And the lesson is that God is to be our king. And, and, and Gideon is rightly preaching that message. It sounds good. It's the right thing to say. But it's not what he actually does. He refuses the name of king, but he takes all the power of king plus other power too. So he takes the power of the priesthood. That's why he gets all these earrings, all this gold, and builds an ephod that he puts in his own town. He's now a priest. He has the ephod. He's crossing that boundary. And then he begins to act like a king. That's why he has all these many wives and the the, uh, 70 sons pagan kings at the time would want to store up the number of children they had to try and create a hereditary monarchy that's what he's doing so having said he doesn't want it he's acting to get it and then most amazingly of all uh, the author of judges ensures that we understand what's going on by pointing out that one of his concubines one of his wives had a son that Gideon called, verse 31, Abimelech. And Abimelech means, get this, my daddy is king. So just imagine being around Gideon and his family, and if you had any doubt on who was really king, all Gideon would do is call Abimelech to him. Abimelech, daddy is king, come here. Not too subtle, but with disastrous effects. They return to pagan idolatry in the end. That's what not to do. What should we do? Well, let me illustrate it for you like this as we, as we close. And with this illustration, just to say I'm neither an engineer nor a scientist, so if you are an engineer and a scientist and you want to come up and correct my science afterwards, feel free, but just understand it's an illustration. Okay. So, um, but imagine, if you will, there's a bicycle wheel, right? And you go to your 
a house and you, you take the cars out of your garage and you, you get this bicycle wheel and you attach it by its axle with a rope to the uh, ceiling of your garage, what will happen to the bicycle wheel? It will just hang there, right? But if you've balanced everything just right and you spin that wheel, it will go it will take on a, the properties of a, of a gyroscope. It will spin up horizontally. The same force is what drives uh, gyro compasses that are used to navigate ships and submarines. And in old planes, we used to navigate planes. For us as a church, for us as individuals, for us as a society, to have peaceful harmony, there's only one way. And that is for everything to spin around the axle of God. It's the only way. It's exactly what Gideon did not do. He put himself in the center. And of course things fell apart. And that is the great task, of course, of the gospel, to cause us to center our lives upon God. It's the great task of Jesus himself when he came. Which is why he famously said, my peace I give you. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian and you're wondering why your life seems so chaotic. Your life is not spinning on the axle. That's why. Perhaps you are a Christian and you're wondering why things have got out of sync your life is not quite spinning on the axle. Win the peace and center your life upon God. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we do pray that you'd help us to do that, to put our lives in your hands and to trust you this morning. We ask your help as we look ahead to the week whether it's at school or work or home. We pray, Lord, that you would take a central place in our lives. We pray that would be true for us as a church, Lord, that you would always be honored and glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.